2: Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Kate Wolf. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has confirmed that a Sacramento County resident has tested positive for monkeypox, the first case here in California. Officials say the person likely contracted the disease while traveling in Europe and is said to be doing well. Earlier this week, Sacramento County Public Health Officer Dr. Olivia Kaciria described some of what people might experience when it comes to the viral disease.
1: Some people may experience a fever or swelling of the lymph nodes, and uh, they they might have a headache or other flu-like symptoms. But a lot of people also may not have any of those and may just see the rash as the first symptom.
2: Monkeypox is very rare in the United States. There have only been a handful of cases since the start of this month, despite outbreaks in parts of Europe. Starting today, UCLA is reinstating an indoor mask policy. The university's 45,000 students and all faculty, staff and visitors will be required to wear masks inside as coronavirus cases surge in California. Statewide, the number of confirmed coronavirus infections is averaging more than 10,000 per day. But that's considered a significant undercount because so many people are testing at home and not reporting the results. State models forecast the number of people hospitalized will grow to about 5,000 by late June, the highest since February, but a far cry from the more than 15,000 in hospitals at the start of the year. The Bay Area is taking the brunt of the surge, topping 50 new cases per 100,000 residents this week, up from 18 per 100,000 a month ago. Thousands of students across the country and here in California walked out of classes yesterday protesting gun violence in the wake of this week's deadly massacre in Uvalde, Texas. There were several demonstrations in Southern California, including one at Saugus High School in Santa Clarita. Nearly three years ago, there was a mass shooting on that campus in which a Saugus student opened fire and killed two classmates before turning the gun on himself. Mia Tretta was one of the students wounded by the gunman that day and led yesterday's walkout. She spoke with KCAL 9 TV in Los Angeles.
3: This is the people who are making the laws and they are not
2: listening to the fact that we are dying at our schools. And that's not fair to us. We can't vote yet. But the people who are there are not doing what they need to do. The group Students Demand Action helped organize the nationwide walkouts. The student group launched in 2018 after the mass shooting at a school in Parkland, Florida. Hundreds of unionized workers who've been on strike against Chevron's Bay Area refinery are set to start voting today on a deal that could end what's been a bitter two-month-long walkout. KQED's Ted Goldberg reports.
4: In late March, some 500 workers at Chevron began a strike over safety concerns, pay, and benefits. Since then, refinery managers and contract workers have been running the plant. Some local elected officials and activists have expressed concern that could lead to a refinery accident. During the strike, leaders of the United Steelworkers Local 5 and Chevron managers have only talked at the negotiating table a few times. But on Thursday, things changed. The two sides reached a tentative contract. Chevron says if the workers ratify the deal, they could return to the job in the coming weeks. The union says to expect results of the vote on the contract Saturday night. For the California Report, I'm Ted Goldberg.
2: A strike by thousands of nurses has been averted at four Los Angeles County-run hospitals and multiple clinics after an all-night bargaining session led to a tentative agreement. KPCC senior health reporter Jackie Fortier has the details.
1: The union representing about 7,000 nurses at L.A. County-run hospitals and clinics reached a tentative agreement with the county early Thursday morning. Cynthia Mitchell is a supervising staff nurse in the emergency department at LAC-USC Medical Center. She's also on the bargaining team. I actually feel great. We were fighting for a better work schedule, which is a 36-hour work uh, schedule that's comparable to our hospitals, and that's another reason why nurses were leaving because the other hospitals offered a better work schedule. This tentative agreement averts the three-day strike that was scheduled to begin June 1st. Over the next few weeks, thousands of SEIU nurses will vote. If they approve it, the new
2: contract will last three years. For the California Report, I'm Jackie Fortier in Los Angeles. Workers in the California legislature are not allowed to unionize, but a new bill would change that. CAP Radio's Nicole Nixon reports.
3: Legislative staff often work long, grueling hours without overtime, and many use their vacation time to campaign for their bosses, says Shibongi Demokos. She's a former legislative staffer who now works for the California Labor Federation. Make no mistake, the outcome of this bill will be a direct reflection of the values of this legislative body and how it feels its employees should be treated some legislative workers have also complained about the process for reporting workplace misconduct, even though it was revamped in the wake of the Me Too movement. California allowed most public employees to unionize in 1977, but legislative staff has always been excluded. This is the fourth bill in recent years that would allow capital workers to collectively bargain with legislative leadership. This time, 30 Democratic lawmakers have already signed on. Sacramento Assemblymember Kevin McCarty is the bill's author.
4: You know, I've gotten up there and spoken about rights for our farm workers, for our child care workers, for in-home support services to have a voice.
3: The Sacramento Democrat says it's hypocritical not to allow legislative staff to organize two. The bill would not create a union, but allow staff to move forward with starting or joining one. For the California Report, I'm Nicole Nixon
0: in Sacramento.
2: Immigrant advocates and the U.S. government have reached an agreement on standards for the treatment of children in Border Patrol facilities. As KQED's immigration editor, Taiki Hendricks, reports, it comes two years after advocates raised alarms over shocking conditions at the Texas border during the Trump administration. In 2019,
1: lawyers in a long-running lawsuit over the care of children in immigration custody went to inspect Border Patrol stations in South Texas and around El Paso. They found hundreds of kids crammed in frigid holding cells for weeks with little to eat and nowhere to sleep or bathe. A consent decree in that lawsuit requires, quote, safe and sanitary conditions, but government lawyers argued that didn't mean they had to provide soap and toothbrushes. And around that time, at least five children died after being detained by the Border Patrol. So a federal judge in Los Angeles who oversees the consent decree, known as the Flores Settlement, ordered the government and the lawyers for the children to come up with clearer health and safety standards.
2: It provides much more detail in terms of what health care, both physical and mental, must be available.
1: Bill Ong-Hing is a law professor at the University of San Francisco. He was part of the inspection team, and he says the new agreement is a breakthrough.
2: In terms of meals, water for nursing mothers, baby formula, disposable bottles, hygiene, toothbrushes, soap. These things like basic things, but they were not spelled out before.
1: Hing says the agreement also requires the Border Patrol to regulate the temperature in holding cells that migrants describe as iceboxes and to turn down the lights and provide quiet time for children to sleep. And he says a key provision is the agreement not to separate kids from the relatives they're traveling with.
2: Many of the children are accompanied by a grandmother or an uncle or aunt or an older sibling. And up till now, those children will be separated from that non-parent adult. But this agreement provides that there will not be family separation.
1: The proposal is now in the hands of the federal judge, who's expected to approve it in coming weeks. The agreement only covers the Rio Grande and El Paso sectors, but advocates hope the Border Patrol will apply the standards everywhere. Officials with the Departments of Justice and Homeland Security did not respond to KQED's requests for comment. For The California Report, I'm Taiki Hendricks.
2: And now to a preview of our sister show, The California Report's weekly magazine. This week, the documentary duo The Kitchen Sisters share a tribute to Betty Reed Soskin, who recently retired as the oldest National Park Service Ranger at age 100.
0: My great-grandmother, Leontine Bro, had been born into slavery in 1846 in St. James Parish, Louisiana. She was the result of rape. My great-grandmother lived to be 102, not dying until 1948. My mother was born in 1894 and lived to be 101, dying in 1995, and I was born in 1921. That means the three of us were all adults at the same time. That I was 27 years old, married, and a mother by the time my slave ancestor died. I knew her the matriarch of my family. And those three lives had bridged the entire American narrative all the way from the Dred Scott decision, the Civil War, Emancipation Proclamation, Plessy B. Ferguson, Sacco and Vanzetti, Rosenberg's, Lindbergh's flight and Amelia Earhart's loss, two civil wars, Vietnam, House and American Activities Committee, Kent State and People's Park, and Malcolm X, Dr. King, Fannie Lou Hamer and Emmett Till, assassinations of the Kennedys, moon landing, the Mars probe, E equals MC squared, <laughs> and black holes and Stephen Hawking, the bombing of the Murrow Building in Oklahoma, 20 kids in a Connecticut classroom and their teachers, and nine people in a prayer circle, in South Carolina and 26 people in a small church in Texas. Trayvon Martin and Oscar Grant, Michael Brown and Peter Gray and Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter and all of that happened within a lifetime of three women who were all adults at the same time. Add to that the fact that on January 20th of 2009 I'm a seated guest on the Capitol Mall. I'm seated there with a picture of my great-grandmother in my breast pocket, witnessing the inauguration of America's first African-American president. In the shadow of the Lincoln Memorial, Lincoln, whose life was contemporary with the life of my great-grandmother. Because that's how fast time goes.
2: You can hear more of the Kitchen Sisters documentary about Betty Reed Soskin on this week's California Report magazine. Tune in on your public radio station or check out the California Report magazine podcast.
1: Support for the California Report comes from Personal Capital, providing people with financial tools like the retirement planner to help them achieve their financial goals, personalcapital.com. Paint care now with 834 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org.
2: And that's the California Report for Friday, May 27th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, and Chris Hoff, with assistance from Jim Bennett. Our producers are Mary Franklin Harvin and Keith Mizuguchi. Our senior editor is Angela Corral. Our Director of News is Minnie Tong. Our executive editor is Ethan Tovin-Lindsay. And our Chief Content Officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Kate Wolf. Thanks for listening.